I'm Robert Wade I'm in the Department of International Development here at LSE, and I'm going to be introducing our speaker. Today's talk on the subject of globalization, migration, and the future of the middle classes, notice the plural classes, um, could scarcely be more relevant for understanding the referendum result. The referendum was ostensibly about remaining or leaving the EU, but many voters who voted for leave did so less from a negative effect, from a negative assessment of the effects of EU membership than from anger at their falling relative incomes over the past many years and their worry that their children would be even more worse off than, um, in, in material terms than they have been. And it's striking that the day after the referendum, the second most frequently asked question of Google uh, among all the EU-related questions was, quote, what is the EU, question mark. The Remain camp argued that Britain has done well, will continue to do well economically from EU membership, but the claims of a British boom ring hollow to those who are unemployed or on zero contract hours or who have been forced off benefits. And much the same applies in the Rust Belt of the US and in parts of Europe where politicians like Donald Trump and Marie Le Pen um, have enjoyed high electoral support. In the US, it's striking that um, ever since 2004, a majority of Americans say that they expect that their children will materially be worse off than they have been. And they are quite angry about that prospect. So in that context, it's really surprising that income and wealth distribution have, has long been a neglected subject in economics and in other social sciences. The current chief economist of Citigroup and former LSE professor of economics, Willem Boiter, justified the neglect of income distribution when he said in the Financial Times in 2007, quote, poverty bothers me, inequality does not, I just don't care. Social scientists tend to study things that are regarded as problems, so we have a huge amount of social science on the problem of the poor and of poverty, but we have very little social science on the rich. We have a poor economics, we do not have a rich economics. So one possible upside to this shock that is going around Europe and the world um, is that elites will give more attention to securing a more equal distribution of income and wealth um, in their own self-interest and in the interest of um, protecting the survival of the European Union. Well, among the hundreds of thousands of professional economists publishing in the English language, one can count on the fingers of maybe two hands the names of people who have made significant contributions to our understanding of the economics of income and wealth distribution. And Branko is one of those few. He's published a slew of books and many dozens of articles about income and wealth distribution, beginning, in fact, with his PhD uh, dissertation from the University of Belgrade in 1987, which was later turned into a book, 
And the significant point is that this PhD dissertation was the first study of inequality in Yugoslavia based upon household uh, income and expenditure surveys. And his big contribution, or one of his big contributions to the whole subject of income distribution is that he has used his uh, 20 or so years in the World Bank to use, to, uh, use the resources of the World Bank to pull together hundreds of studies of household surveys of income and wealth distribution um, around the world in order to come up with uh, information, data on global income distribution. And so this is an approach to global income distribution quite different from um, that which has been the standard approach. This is a pioneering uh, kind of um, approach. Nobody else has published this kind of data uh, that he has pioneered. Well, he is currently senior scholar at the Luxembourg Income Study Center, um, and also um, he is visiting presidential professor at the Graduate Center of the um, City University of New, New York, or CUNY. The hashtag for this event is, as you see, uh, I want to remind you to switch off your cell phones. Branko will speak for maybe 40, 45 minutes, and then we'll have time for Q&A. Given his argument on migration, what we should do and what we should not do about migration, I think there will be quite an active question and answer session. The, the event will end by 8 o'clock and not a minute after, not least because Branko, who's a keen football fan, is well aware <laughs> that the England-Iceland match starts at 8 o'clock. And you have to think that if Leave can win the referendum and if <laughs> Leicester can win the championship and if Iceland can hold uh, Portugal to a draw, then it becomes quite feasible to think that mighty Iceland could actually beat England, which would send a shock almost as big as the referendum result. Um, however, unfortunately for Branko, the football fan, he will be sitting outside for some time after this event, uh, willing to sign copies of his great book, his recent book, this book, which is available outside for the mere price of £23. Branko. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Thank you very much to, for, to Robert for this really great introduction, not only of me and my work, but actually putting it in the context in which he did. And uh, if the time permits, maybe later during the Q&A, of course, there may be also some questions about this somewhat surprising absence of work on inequality of income and wealth over, you know, last 20, 25 years, which I think is now being redressed to a large extent, but really, you know, not obviously, I think, in my opinion, sufficiently. Of course, I would like to thank all of you for having come here, because it is really, obviously, like the end of the school year, the summer is beginning, the the Brexit just took place, which has, of course, provided additional excitement. And then uh, the, the Euro between the two games, between the big one between Spain and, and Italy, which I suppose just ended, and uh, the England-Iceland games. So I really appreciate your coming to this talk. So let me uh, actually 
try to go. I will. Ha I have more slides than I would, and I think actually they would be. They are available on the on the uh, website. So I suppose if you wish, you can actually go and, and look at them. There are many more than what I will actually present here. So um, let me start with. The, I will have to actually skip some of them too. Now let me start. Why I start with why explain why I start with this within national inequalities. I will talk today about first global inequality and global inequality in income. Now let me define these terms. First, global inequality means inequality between, technically speaking, all citizens in the world. So it, it is as if the world were one country. Obviously, we are used to having inequality studies of UK or France or United States or China or any other country. But we are not used to having inequality studies of the world simply because there is no global authority that would collect such data. However, and that was actually in that sense the World Bank was very important for me because I was for 20 years in the research department in the unit which actually produces this famous $1, which used to be $1 a day poverty line and calculates the number of people who are below that line and so on. So it was a very good place where you actually could have access to household surveys from the countries that normally would be very difficult to obtain for many reasons, including the fact that the countries very often don't want to release the data from household surveys. So essentially what you have to do, and I will be very brief because it's, a, it's a quite a big exercise, you have to collect data from different countries, you have to try to standardize the income or consumption definitions, you have then to convert the data which are expressed in national currency units, you have to convert them into international dollars, so everything that I would actually say when I talk about incomes, these incomes would be expressed in PPP dollars or so-called international dollars. Now, what these dollars do, they adjust for price levels between the countries. Obviously, one dollar in, in England or in London will buy you much less than it would buy you in India. So we have to adjust for that. So every dollar of income in India would be basically multiplied by a factor to represent lower, to, to account to, or to adjust for the lower price level in India. So this is really the massive kind of an exercise that you would do. And I also have to uh, point out that I'm talking about income. So it's really the flow of revenues, if you wish, mostly from labor, but also from property, from your capital, and also from social transfers, and reducing, in principle, reducing that income or deducting for direct taxes. This is, the, um, this is kind of a, uh, the aggregate with which I would be dealing. So when you have actually that kind of global inequality, that global inequality can formally then be global income inequality, can be formally divided or decomposed into two parts. And that's why my talk will be organized around these two parts, and even my book is organized around that. One part is inequalities within countries, and another part is inequality between countries or among countries, which really is inequality between mean country incomes. So in the first part, we talk about inequalities in UK, US, China, and so forth. And then in the second part, we focus on inequalities in mean income between the countries. So it is really Spain versus Morocco, U.S. versus uh, 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 Mexico, and of course all the other countries, but I'm just giving you some, you know, bilateral comparisons, or maybe U.K. versus countries in Eastern Europe, which is now, of course, a big issue also because of migration. But then you can actually see the global inequality as being the sort of the effect or the composition or the 
sort of a, a, a sum of these two types of inequalities. It's no different than if I were to say that inequality in this room is equal to inequality within this group of people, this group of people, and that group of people, plus an additional inequality with, between mean incomes of people on the right, people in the center, and people on the left. So that's essentially what you do. But because our work is, uh, for income inequality is, is, is driven mostly by inequalities within nations, I have to start with that in a very brief sort of introduction. Um, many of you actually are quite aware of that and know, but, so there is not much new that I would sh show you here, but I just wanted to, to give you an idea of what happened in the last quarter of a century. And I'm not going to read everything on the slides, but of course we know that broadly speaking, the average Gini, which is the measure of inequality ranging from zero to 100, zero with everybody having technically the same income, which of course doesn't happen in real life, 100 with one person having the entire income of the country, which also obviously doesn't happen. So what you notice here is that actually if you just look at the top line, you see the average Gini around 1988, and that's the beginning of my global inequality study, and 2011, which is kind of my end date, although there is like very recent update that, that actually carries the results up to 2013, you see an increase of about two and a half Gini points. So this is actually taking all the countries in the world. So broadly speaking, most of them, or actually two-thirds of the countries in the world, have had an increase in inequality over that period. Now, this is not surprising. We, you, one reads about that in the newspapers all the time. People in the UK know that quite well. You know, if you compare today's level of inequality with the level of inequality in the early 80s, it is, it is higher by probably six to seven Gini points. So it was a significant increase which happened in the 1980s and then in the 1990s. Uh, if you differently weigh these genies, and I will not go into all these details, you will, of course, again get the same type of general increase in inequality within nations. Or you can actually do it on a graph like this one, where you, actually, where you take each dot to be, um, to re to be sort of representing the population size of a country. So as you will notice here, and there are some reasons for that, I have China urban and rural income distributions because Chinese surveys until 2013 were two independent surveys, one of the rural areas and one of the urban areas. And also price levels in China in rural and urban areas are different. I do the same thing for India. I have India rural and India urban. But as you notice here, quite a few of these large countries lie above this 45-degree line implying that inequality today is higher than it was some 20 or 25 years ago. Now, there are some exceptions, and I will briefly mention them. As you notice that at the very end of this slide, you have Brazil and Mexico, and actually quite a few other Latin American countries, where inequality is extremely high, which of course we know, but it was very special, what was special there is that inequality went down. So whereas in the rest of the world inequality grosso modo, broadly speaking, went up, in Latin America, which is a very unequal continent and where countries are very unequal, inequality went down. And it might lead us to, the, to, to wonder what will happen now in Brazil with the recession, as you know, with the change in government and so on. But when we talk about last 20 years, Brazil, Argentina, and Mexico are the examples of the countries that have reduced inequality. 
although their inequality is still extremely high and much higher than inequality in the U.S. or U.K. or practically any, or actually any rich country. Uh, now, to also illustrate what happened to inequality in the rich world, let me use very briefly this slide, which contrasts U.S. and Germany, and actually has one important message, which I'll hope to, to, to bring very sort of quickly, is that if you look first uh, at this red line, if I can actually show it, oh, here it is. Look at the red line. So this red line, this is the years, and this is the Gini coefficient. So you see the red line is going up, meaning that inequality is increasing. But now this red line is a very special definition of income. This is the income before government redistribution. So that's the income before social transfers, like pensions, unemployment benefits, social assistance, and before you deduct direct taxation. So it's essentially what is called market income. It's what market produces. Is you have labor, and, you, and obviously you get a wage for that, and you have some assets, and you get return on these assets. Now, one thing which is actually remarkable here is that, and this is the case for practically all rich countries, is that you have a significant increase in all of them of this underlying market inequality. And if you look at Germany, it actually had a higher increase than the U.S., the interesting part, of which I will just say a few words, but I could, of course, expand on that, is that whereas in Germany you can actually see some kind of a of setting force through redistribution. In other words, if you have an underlying tendency towards increased inequality, because the returns to wage, to labor, or inequality of wages becomes greater, then technically speaking, government can offset that by increasing social transfers or by making them more targeted to the either middle class or the poor. And that's basically what happened, like you can see here in Germany, very dramatic, of course, decline when you actually look at the green line, which includes social transfers. You see, actually, the Gini, which was more than 50, goes down to about 35. So you, have, you shave off about eight, 15 Gini points, which is a lot, and then you reduce an additional five Gini points through uh, direct taxes. So you end up with a Gini in Germany of a little bit over 30, or 0.3, but actually it is, you, you can multiply it by, just for simplicity by 100, so about 30, and it's actually slightly higher than it was in 1970s or early 1980s, presumably because of the redistributive function of the state. There is much more to that than that, but let's say that this is essentially the state reacting to this underlying increase in inequality. Or, differently, you can actually let the state function as it functioned before, where essentially you don't reduce inequality any more than you were reducing it in the past. Notice in the U.S. that you still do reduce it. The, the Gini was, or re, with market income was more than 50, then it goes to something 45, so you shave off about seven Gini points through government transfers, and then you reduce it even more, another probably five or six points through direct taxation. But you, you have not really increased the redistributive function of the state there between this period and that period but very much, maybe slightly, maybe one or two Gini points, whereas here you have reduced it more. So what is the, story, the, the background to this? Is that essentially, I think there are two essential points there. That the period of the last quarter of a century in the rich countries was 
sort of uh, characterized by a rising inequality in market incomes driven by rising by widening of the wage distribution and increased returns probably to, high, to people with large amounts of capital, a point that was brought up by Piketty in his book. So you have an underlying strength, strong force of rising inequality. Against that rising inequality, you have government, government redistributive function. That function can become stronger, in which case you are trying to offset that force of underlying inequality, or that function can remain the same or weaker than it was before, in which case, obviously, you just go with the flow and you are not offsetting the increase in inequality. So I think these are the two points which we can take from this slide, although, as I said, the, the, the real story, if you were to study each individual country or even comparative studies, each country is a story in itself and it's more kind of... Um, uh, uh, more complex than this relatively simple story that I'm telling now. This is the same graph, so I will not really go there because it's a complicated graph. It kind of looks neat, but it actually basically tells the same story. It basically tells the, the, this red line here is the situation where you have essentially offsetting the entire amount of the, you're basically along, along this line, you're entirely offsetting the increase of the market income inequality. And then if you look at, for example, Mexico, and I put Mexico here, you have the Gini of market income going up or down, but with government no, not having any reaction to that. In other words, Mexico's redistribution is very weak, and whether it is weak, whether the underlying market inequality is a Gini of 65 or the underlying market inequality is a Gini of 50. So in other words, whatever happens to underlying inequality of market income, the government does very little to reduce it. So that's actually, these are the two extreme cases where you actually have absence of reaction here and then an almost one-for-one -one reaction in the case of, of Germany. Um, so uh, these are some of the issues, and actually I will not read them out. Uh, I think many of them, uh, you know, Robert already mentioned, and you know then what are the issues which are raised by the growing national inequalities. So, uh, and one of them which I will mention today, and I will spend some time, is the hollowing out of the middle classes in the rich countries and the rising middle class in Asia. And finally, the creation, that's why there is a plural of the classes, of something which we might call the global middle class. So let me move now to that. But before I do move, I want to actually mention a theme from my book, very briefly. It's a two, uh, chapter number two in the book, where I introduced the so-called, this was a new kind of approach, which is the idea of the Kuznets waves. And the idea of the Kuznets waves, of course, follows upon the famous uh, story or some approach that Simon Kuznets, that's actually the, the cover of the book that you have seen already, that uh, Kuznets, uh, follows the idea that Simon Kuznets had in the 1950s, is that, as you know, many of you might know, is that Kuznets believed that very relatively poor agrarian societies are relatively equal because everybody, let's say, is generally equally poor. Then you have a development industrialization, and then you have two forces which increase inequality. You have people moving from villages into towns, 
and the average level of income in the cities is higher than in villages, so you create inequality already because there is a difference in mean incomes between the city and the countryside. And the second force is that simply the number of occupations and wage inequality in the cities is much greater, so you actually have greater diversity of skills, which also adds to inequality. So then he believed there would be a original period of increased inequality, which would peak, and then there would be a decline in equality because people would get more educated, so the return to education would be reduced, and then also there would be pressure to have social assistance, pensions, social transfers as societies become richer, so that would be an additional force that would reduce inequality. Now, the thing is that this seemed to be working quite well, and I'll show you that in a graph, that if you actually, I'm taking UK and the US for which we have longest data. For example, in the UK, I'm actually going back to uh, 16. Uh, we have actually the, the social table, which was done from Gregory King, 1688, and then there was 1759, then 1803, then 1857. So these are, of course, at large, I mean, huge intervals, but we have more data for UK and the US. We have actually quite a lot of data for Spain as well, which I will not show you today, but it's in my book. So these are three or four countries that we have really long-term data. Now, notice one thing, is that actually, notice this thing, this is, you have on the horizontal axis years, from 1600, I believe, here, and then you have a Gini coefficient. So basically, you have this upward slope for both US, US is... is uh, U.S. is blue, U.K. is red. So you have an upward slope with a peak generally believed, although there's some discussion about that, but generally believed that in the U.K. the peak was around 1870s to 1890s. In the U.S. the peak was probably 19, 1929 or 1933. <coughs> and then you have the period of the decline, very significant decline of inequality. So if you look at that and you cover the most recent period, it would seem that Kuznets was generally right, because as, soon, as far as some theoretical uh, idea can come, can come as, as far as it can come close to reality, it does not seem bad at all. The problem, of course, as you know, so this was what I call the, the Kuznets frame. The problem, however, is that what has happened since then is there was an upsurge of inequality, which you can, of course, notice here, in all rich countries. So that's clearly at odds with what actually Kuznets believed should have happened. And this is where I come with my sort of approach. I believe that instead of talking of one Kuznets curve, we should really talk of Kuznets waves. And these waves are in the modern era, which means in the era of the Industrial Revolution or in the era of sustained increase in real income, are driven by economic forces, like, as Kuznets said, education or technological change, by social forces like policies, ideology, size of trade unions, importance of labor, distribution of rent between labor or capital, and also and I will not talk about it today, by what I call also malign forces, which are forces of war and uh, uh, epidemics as in the past. So I actually extend the Kuznets 
cycles, even in the pre-industrial period, and that's where I use the data from Italy and Spain, where actually you also see these cycles, but the mean income is basically stable. But you see these cycles, which are very similar to the Malthusian cycles. So there is, I think, a relationship between the two, most clearly in the case of epidemics, because epidemics in the past would actually wipe out large part of the population. They would increase, as we know from the Black Plague, but from the other epidemics as well, they would increase wage rate. That wage rate then, in the Malthusian fashion, would actually lead to more sort of, uh, to better, obviously, to reduce inequality and to the greater number of people surviving and being born. And then eventually that would be, you know, all offset where there are too many people and they would be the wage would go back to the subsistence. So what I argue is that actually these cycles did exist also in the pre-modern era, but they were driven by different forces. I want also to mention that this cycle here of the decline, and that's why I call it the Kuznets frame, is really basically the, the period where Kuznets, uh, what Piketty has in mind in his book. It's essentially the period from about 1910 or even 1890 to today. But as you can see, if you have actually that particular frame, then instead of an inverted U that Kuznets argued would be the case, you have actually a, a real U-shaped curve. And uh, the role of war is quite important here, and I will, as I said, I will not expand on that, but the war was the force that essentially by destruction of assets and by increased taxation on the rich uh, was the, the, the cause to a large extent of the beginning of the decline of inequalities in the, in the rich countries. So when I talk about these different forces which bring inequality down, I am of course talking of what I call malign forces, as I said before, epidemics and wars, and benign forces, which are forces of economic progress, of education, uh, social policy, welfare policies, and so on. So we have to distinguish them. Uh, there is a quite an eminent economic historian, uh, actually historian rather, uh, Walter Scheidel, who is currently writing a book called The Great Leveler, and his emphasis, uh, with which I don't agree fully, but his emphasis is basically that the only times when you have large declines in inequality was when you had these malign or malignant forces. I think it's not the case because in the period after World War I and World War II, we have had in rich countries significant, I will show you that in a minute, dramatic declines in inequality due to uh, benign forces, not, not to the forces of uh, like, like a war and uh, epidemics, so, or revolutions. So this is the same, uh, this Kuznets wave relationship as you can see now, which I think is actually quite defensible, and you can actually argue that here was the beginning of the, of the, there are many elements which happen, factors that happened there, but also you can argue technological revolution, which was somewhat akin to the industrial revolution in the, in the 19, in the beginning of the, of the 19th century. So look at this, this is the same relationship uh, for the, similar relationship for the United States, and then, um, I would then simply end this interlude by essentially speaking of the, mentioning the forces which if you buy the story of the Kuznets waves, then you actually can argue, as I argue, that the rich countries are currently on the upswing of the second modern era Kuznets wave. But then there should be forces that would eventually drive that wave down. And these are 
list of forces which I believe may be expected that to drive uh, inequality down eventually, although I'm not very optimistic over the medium term. And then obviously the political change or endogenous political change is one. Dissipation of innovation rents, that's something which we have seen before. If you have a technological revolution, people realize huge rents in the beginning, but then you have competition that would dissipate these rents. Another possibility is low-skill technological progress, which I will not discuss, but it's a... Then reduce gaps in education, which has always been a force that would reduce inequality of income. If you simply have more educated people, then the premium on wages would be, on, or high skills would be less. And then, of course, this is for the global and rather for the U.S. situation. The, the, the rise of incomes in China might actually lessen the pressure on U.S. wages. So these are, this is obviously speculative, but uh, I will skip this. I've got about a dozen countries. If you buy the book, you will see them. There is Brazil also there. There is Spain. There is Italy and Japan. And I actually argue, based on this historical experience, that you essentially see something which you can call, uh, uh, which I call the, the Kuznets waves. Now, for Brazil and China, they, what is actually important for me is that what I argue is that, and you notice here, China is tapering off on inequality over the last, this is actually after 2000. So from about 2007, urban inequality in China, according to the official data, has been essentially uh, flat. Uh, there, I argue, you will see it here, at the peak of the first Kuznets wave. In other words, the advanced countries, like the US and the UK, are going up, in a, uh, this is GDP per capita. They are actually obviously richer, and they have they are going through the second technological revolution, and their inequality is rising. So I would say I don't think that the U.S. is at the peak, and I have a whole section in that chapter why I believe that the U.S. is not at the peak of its inequality, but it's going up, upwards on the second uh, Kuznets wave. For China and Brazil, I argue they are at the peak of the first Kuznets wave. So actually, I believe that China, in many respects, has features which are really very much similar to what originally Kuznets had in mind. You know, transfer of labor from agriculture to industrial sector, large increase in education, uh, and nowadays increased wages and the decline in the, in the, in the education premium. And uh, uh, on top of that, the transfer movement from socialism to capitalism, which also exacerbated inequality. So China actually went, I think, over this period almost in a totally Kuznets-like fashion. And I believe that actually there will be forces now that will push Chinese inequality down. So this is the, the really very long uh, sort of introduction on, on within national inequality. So I really I'm, I'm aware of the time. So I really hope I want to come to the global inequalities. Before I do so, I have just briefly to say something about between national inequalities. Now, in between national inequalities, which are in the next, in the chapter three of my book, the, to give you an idea how big they are and how uh, they sort of... Um, or should I say, how it is not simply sufficient to compare only mean incomes between the countries, but to look at the whole distribution, let me show you the, this slide. What it does, it actually takes you on the horizontal axis, and I'm taking, using U.S. here as an example, 
and says, okay, I will then line up all American population from the poorest percentile, number one, to the richest percentile, number 100. Obviously, each percentile is richer by definition, right? And then I'm going to say, where are these people in the global income distribution? Obviously, for me to be able to place them in a global income distribution, I have to have, to have created a global income distribution. So then, what actually this shows you is that even very poor people in the U.S., second percentile or third percentile, are above the global median. So relatively to the, relatively to the world, they're, they're rich. Not very rich, but they're above the global median income. It would also give you an idea how low is global median income because very few people in rich countries are below, almost practically nobody is below the global median income. And as you move up, then clearly each individual additional richer percentile in the U.S. would be also richer in the world. And at the end, you come to a situation where 12% of Americans are part of the global top 1%. I have, you can see these numbers for many countries. I think for the U.K. it's about 4 or 5% of people which are, who are the, the top 5% in the UK are also part of the global top 1%. Generally speaking, for West European countries, it's about that percentage. For US, it's a higher percentage because US incomes are higher and inequality is higher. So people at the top in the US have higher incomes than people in a, at the top in Germany or the UK. And then, if you do the same graph, and this is an extreme case, and it's actually somewhat underestimating the incomes in uh, India, which I will explain later because I think actually, particularly at the very top, this is actually higher than it is here because surveys in, in India are, uh, this is based on consumption and they're basic, they are quite bad in capturing the top income. Nevertheless, what is actually striking here is that you have, of course, even middle class Indians who will be actually, the, the, for example, the median income, that will be at around the 30th percentile in the world. This is also a number for 2008, so that has also changed because of the f fast growth of India over the last uh, eight years. So it would be, you can actually imagine that, that, that curve for India to basically go by about, I don't know, five or six points over here to go up, but you would still have people at the median who will be below the world median income, and even what you might call the middle class in India who will be below the world median. So, and then, of course, in the middle, you find other countries. This is China, and China urban would be much higher than China overall. But you also notice that, of course, there are people in China who are among also very poorest in the world. So this is how you can actually, I think, very nicely, I believe, illustrate the, the differences in uh, not only in mean incomes, but also where in the distribution you are. So if you say, okay, I'm, I think I'm, let's suppose you calculate your income, I'm at the 80th percentile of the UK distribution, that slide would then tell you that you're probably at whatever, 95th percentile of the global distribution. Obviously, you can do many things with that. I was recently asked to do, for example, for the EU. You can do exactly the same type of slide. You can find your position in the EU distribution, and generally speaking, poor countries in the EU would actually exhibit more or less the same pattern that we see here for the poor countries in the world. And then you have a country which 
uh, I'll, I'll, the name will come in a second, which is interesting because it has also people who are among the poorest in the world. It has sizable, as you can see, middle class here, people who are at the 80th and 90th percentile, and it has people who are in their top percentile, which is also global top 1%. And essentially, of course, you can realize these are, this is a country that mimics, and there are a couple of them that mimic the world. Uh, as it were, they kind of contained all the contradictions in terms, if you want to call it like that, of income within themselves. <coughs> I could have taken South Africa. South Africa would have actually fitted this graph extremely well as well. So this is the countries with high inequality of income, but with a sizable middle class and with people who are very rich and people who are extremely poor. Or a different way to look at this is when you contrast some very rich countries which are egalitarian, like Denmark, with many countries in Africa, where you basically don't have an overlap of the distribution. In other words, uh, statistically speaking, <coughs> the top, the, here are actually people are by, it goes up to 20, because I'm using here ventiles, 5%. So there are 20 of such ventiles in the whole distribution. And even the top 5% in Uganda is poorer than the poorest 5% of people in Denmark. So this is the, oh, I think, one of the many uses of this sort of graphs about the, the between national inequalities. <laughs> Let me just skip now because I really will not have the time otherwise to talk about global inequalities and even less to actually talk about migration unless I sort of go quickly over other things. Uh, I just want to mention that these large gaps in mean country incomes raise two issues which I hope to at least mentioned today. One is the political philosophy issue of what I call in the book the citizenship rent. This is essentially the issue, the, the, the fact that the place of birth or the place of residence, and we know that there are approximately between 3.5% and 4% of people who live in countries where they were not born, uh, that place of residence or place of birth is associated with large citizenship rent if you are lucky enough to be born or to reside in rich countries, and conversely with large citizenship penalty if you were born or if you reside in poor countries. And why does the political philosophy issue? Is because you have otherwise two exactly the same individuals who would have very or vastly different uh, lifetime incomes. So then the question can be raised, does really equality of opportunity end a national border? And I think implicitly we have always answered that question in the affirmative, believing that because in even in our language we use inequality of opportunity only within nation state. We talk about gender inequality or maybe educational background or parental and all the other factors which should not influence your position in society of your long-term income. But we never address that with a global framework. Now, there may be good reasons, and I will not go into that, and it was writ really written by political scientists, political philosophers, rather, why this is okay, and including Rawls, who believes that actually that particular dimension should not, that particular, how should I say, inequality should not matter. But there are also others who believe that that particular inequality has to be discussed and put on the table. I think it's actually very much an issue that, as, as uh, you know, as Robert mentioned, is actually something that was very important in the in the referendum uh, a few days ago. And ten minutes, okay. And then finally, the second issue, which is also raised here, is the issue of migration 
and national welfare states. In, in that part, and I will maybe do that in the Q&A, I, I actually have a sort of a certain logic where I argue that um, I argue in favor of differentiated citizenship for migrants. In other words, I'm against, I, not against necessarily, but actually given the conditions that we live in, I believe that citizenship should not be viewed any longer as simply binary citizenship where the fact that you are resident of the UK or citizen open, you, and you come to the UK opens you the ways to get all the benefits that native population has, but that we should actually differentiate. Some people have not liked that. They actually even call this kind of an upper height like system, but I would actually hope to explain why I think that this particular uh, uh, way might be actually more uh, favorable or better for the reduction of global inequality and global poverty, although it does have obviously some, some maybe uh, you know, unpalatable sides to it. So now let me come to the global inequality finally. And so as, you, as I explained before, global inequality is really the uh, sort of the combined, the summa, if you will, of these within national inequalities and national inequalities. Now focus on these three points here. This is really the, based on our study on global inequality, based on all these household surveys that I described before. And it carries us from 1988 because we really cannot get really reasonably good coverage of the world before mid-1980s. Neither the Soviet Union nor China nor most of Africa either had surveys or wanted to release the survey results before 1985. So that's basically, if you want to do that, you have to start with 1988. I think it's the earliest year. And that carries over to 2011 and even 2013 that I mentioned. Now, these dots are at five-year, approximately three to five-year intervals because you do not have all the countries having surveys annually. So you have to create benchmark years and take the surveys from around that benchmark year. If benchmark year is 2011, I can take Nigeria survey from 2013 or 2012 and survey from, you know, Nicaragua from 2010. And what you notice here, and that's the important part, is that actually that, that first, that inequality is extremely high. We are talking of the Gini coefficient over 70, which is beyond anything which exists in any individual country. If you take countries like Colombia or Namibia or South Africa that are very, very unequal, you're in the upper, in the mid-60s range. But the world is above 70. So obviously inequality in the world as a whole is much higher than inequality in any individual country. But you also notice here that essentially from the year 2000, we have had a decline in global inequality. Now, this is an extremely important development for many reasons. And I will try to actually mention, if I don't forget all of them, if I remember all of them, if I might miss some of them, I will remember at least some. First of all, over the long term, and these are really based on guesses that we have from the early 19th century to today, this is the first time that we have had a decline in global inequality. Secondly, and the reason why we had a decline in global inequality because from, 18, from 1820s to, to basically 1990, it has been driven by the rising differences in country, mean country incomes. And just to visualize that, uh, think of the situation that existed around the Industrial Revolution, where the gap between UK and the Netherlands on the one hand, and China on the other hand, was something to <coughs> three to one to four to one. 
Then what happened over the next 100 years was that that gap, and this is actually this global genie, that gap significantly increased. And not only that gap, but the entire UK distribution was moved towards higher income levels. That created large, not only in UK, but also Western Europe, North America, Japan, and so on. That created large uh, differences in income within the global population, and that's why you had essentially this rising inequality driven essentially by rising gaps in countries' mean incomes. That came to an end, as you can see here, in the latter part of the 20th century, and now we are in that period of a beginning of the decline. We don't know whether to continue, but the beginning of the decline of global inequality, driven now by the catch-up, essentially, of China and India and the rest of Asia. So if you want really to have the, the picture of global inequality sketched in a most rudimentary way, you have to start a little bit like a big bang. You have to start with a situation where, generally speaking, countries' incomes differ very little by a factor of three to four to one. Distributions within countries are unequal, but they cannot be hugely unequal because the surplus is relatively limited. So even if you have people who are at the top, a king or somebody very rich, you don't have sufficient number of people who are very rich. And then you have development and industrial revolution, and development which, like the Big Bang, has set some countries on the path of rising incomes, and other countries, in particular China and India, because they are important because of their population size, have had flat per capita income, or in some cases actually declining per capita income. That has created this huge gap, which to some extent was, a re was reflected also in colonialism and huge dominance of the rich countries or the north over the south. But that has recently come to an end and is being reversed now by the catch-up not only of China or India, although that's the most important, but of the rest of Asia. So this is, in a nutshell, how the world history, as you wish, of global inequality looks over the last two centuries. Now, depending on what you project or see for the future, you can actually see that continuing down if you believe as I do tend to believe also, that actually Asian countries will continue to have higher growth rates than basically Europe and uh, North America and Japan. So in that case, you could see, imagine some kind of a giant inverted U taking place and bringing us back at the end of the 21st century to a situation of global inequality which would be as it was in the beginning of the 19th century. Uh, however, I have to say that these projections obviously are very tricky, and one big unknown there, obviously we don't know whether Asia will continue high growth, but let's suppose that we agree that it would. Uh, but one big unknown is what will happen to Africa, which is a continent with the highest increase in population, and where actually the catch-up has, uh, has not happened or has been unsteady. So there were periods where Africa was catching up with the rich world, but there were also periods where it was going down. And if you compare African incomes today with, with, uh, with the West, and you compare them in 1960, Africa has fallen behind. And if you compare it with 1930s, Africa has even further fallen behind. So we don't, obviously, it's very difficult to project then what will happen in the, in, uh, over the next 50 years or so. But if you, yeah. If you uh, 
believe in the economics of convergence and the fact, and if you believe that growth rates of poorer countries would tend to be higher than growth rates of rich countries, then you can actually see some favorable developments of global inequality. Now, these favorable developments of global inequality are taking place at the same time, oh, this is all technical issues which I will not mention, uh, they are taking place at the same time as inequalities within nation states go up. So important thing is really to kind of put that in one's mind is that you can have global inequality going down whereas inequality in each individual country goes up. And the reason why is that it might happen and it is happening is because poorer countries have higher growth rate. So essentially the, 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 the uh, simultaneous existence of a feeling of rising inequalities within nations can coexist and does coexist with decline in global inequality. And my last slides in the, in, the, in the last three minutes is the one that many of you might have seen on Twitter or elsewhere. It has been quoted quite a lot. Uh, it's called the elephant graph and actually charts what happened over the last 25 years, or actually in this case 20 years, but now, as I said, it's extended to 2013, in terms of global income distribution, who benefited more and who benefited less. And one important thing, well, actually three important things to retain from this graph is that if you line up people by their position in the global income distribution, from the poorest people to the global top 1%, and if then you look at what was their real income change over that period, so how much was cumulatively that they have become richer at each of these percentiles, what you notice is that this first point is the point where you had an almost doubling in some cases actually more than doubling, of real incomes, which I call, just to give you an idea who is there, China's middle class, but it's really basically the, the resurgent Asia, as, as Agnes Madison called it, and these are people, 90% of people at that point are from Asia. However, this is what we call nowadays, we try to call it global middle class, but it's important to realize that incomes of these people there are still very low by Western standards. They range from 6 to $15 a day, and $15 a day is in many rich countries the line for social assistance. So they're actually below, many of them are below what would be considered poverty in the rich world. So now the second point, which of course was the one that attracted lots of attention, is this one here, is that actually when you look at people who are richer than this, what I call China's middle class. These are people at the 80th, 85th percentile of the global income distribution. You find that 90% of people in that group who had very little real income growth or zero income growth overall, close to zero, are people from the lower parts of the income distributions of the rich countries. And three countries stand out because of the size, is Japan, Germany, and the US, where you had very little real growth in the lower part of the income distribution. And of course, I finish my talk, and I finish also the, the description of this graph with a third point, so you can point C, where you also see large increases in relative terms, and that's the top 1% that also seemed to have or did actually double its real income over that period. So essentially what you have there, you have, if you want to call it in relative terms, two winners. This is the middle classes of Asia and the global top 1% of global plutocrats. 
and one loser. This is the lower middle classes or the working classes of the rich world. No, they have not lost in absolute terms. They are still much richer than people in Asia, but they have seen very little growth. And it is, I believe, and going back to, to the introduction, it is uh, the, the, the very sort of um, paradoxical or difficult position of people here because that's where actually Western distributions start. And of course, what they notice is that, of course, people who are much richer than them have actually had a very, very good period of growth. And then they feel probably somewhat threatened, whether by migration or because of outsourcing or because of imports by people who are poorer than them but who seem to be doing in relative terms over the last 25 years very well. So I think this is this very conflicted and paradoxical situation of the working classes and the lower or the middle class in the rich world which is now attracting quite a lot of attention and also of course the question of whether there is a relationship between the very high growth here and the absence of growth over there. So let me finish now on this uh, note, and uh, obviously I'm sure we will have many more things to discuss. Thank you very much. Okay, now we now have um, uh, 30 minutes, not a minute more, for Q&A. And I want to um, abuse my role as chair to press uh, Branko to elaborate a bit on something that he mentioned in passing, but which is a very, very hot issue right now. You said in passing that you thought it would be, and you elaborate more in, in this book, that it would be a good idea if rich countries introduced um, grades of citizenship um, and you said it would be a good idea, particularly in terms of reducing global poverty, increasing global welfare. And so I just wondered if you would care to um, elaborate that argument. And of course, in the course of elaborating it, you have to explain why the citizens of sovereign states uh, should uh, give weight to the objective of reducing global poverty raising global welfare as distinct from uh, poverty and welfare within their own sovereign states. So what is the argument linking um, migration, categories of citizenship, and global welfare? Okay, I, I would try to be brief because I'm, I'm sure there will be other questions, and this alone can actually take us for another couple of hours. Uh, but, so, but let me just simply sort of outline the, the logic of the argument. My logic is as follows. Uh, you can see development as basically increased incomes of everybody, but especially of poor people, because that's, that's reducing global poverty and global inequality. Now, that development can take, in a very formal sense, can take place either in the countries where people are or in the countries where they would like to move to. So, formally speaking, it's actually equivalent. Politically, obviously, it is not equivalent. But we know that migration is, from the global point of view, an extremely powerful tool for the reduction of global inequality and poverty. Now, if really people were totally interchangeable, and it really doesn't matter who moves where and what happens, as, for example, is the case within one nation, 
then we would really have a very easy answer. We would just say, let's open the borders. It really doesn't make any difference. We just move whoever wants to move wherever he or she wants. They go there. And that's exactly what is happening for, for within nation states. Nobody has argued that keeping people in Wales who are born in Wales is good for Wales or for the UK or for the world. But the problem is, so this is, I think, a general statement, and we have to be aware that from the point of view of economics, that statement, it seems to me, is rather incontrovertible and is very clear. However, we know that the world is organized in political nation-states, so that people who are in different nation-states might actually, uh, for many reasons, whether because they feel they were wages or... or um, jobs may be threatened or because they want, for some cultural reasons, want to preserve the, their country as it is, they might actually not like that idea of migration. So that's where I came with a sort of a substitute solution because then we have really, if we really accept that, we can then say, okay, we are really get, getting rid of a very important tool for the reduction of global inequality and poverty. We just say, basically, we get rid of migration and we will not actually use it as a tool for the reduction of inequality and poverty. An intermediate solution that I actually propose in the book is how to make more palatable to the citizens of the rich countries the uh, uh, sort of acceptance of the, of the people from poor countries is to view migration not as it is now, where essentially people come to a rich country and they expect there to stay for an indefinite period of time and also to get all the benefits which come with citizenship or residency, but really to introduce some kind of discrimination, if you will, where actually some would have it and many would not have it. It is similar to some extent to the situation, which I'm not saying is great, but what, what is happening in the Gulf countries, where you actually have temporary labor, or what is called in Germany the Gastarbeiter, coming, working, and then going back. Uh, that also would reduce inequality and poverty simply because these people would have higher incomes in the countries where they are compared to what they had in their own countries. And that's why I actually have this slide. Actually, I had some more, but I, uh, maybe it's an older slide. It's of a trade-off between full citizenship rights and migration. If, and I think actually so long as you have the negative slope, I think that we are basically in agreement. If you believe that everybody who comes to a rich country should immediately get full citizenship rights. I believe that the flow of migration would be very slow, small. There would be resistance to accept more migrants, and we were really giving up that powerful tool of reduction of global inequality and poverty. If you, however, believe that actually the, 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 lower, the, the lower rights you give to migrants the greater would be the acceptance by the native population of migration and the greater would be the flow, you're basically moving uh, along this line. And the question simply becomes, where at this line are we going to actually stand? Maybe some countries would stand at a higher point, others at a lower point, but I think we should accept the very idea that there may be a trade-off between the citizenship rights and the extent of migration. 
In other words, that actually we should not, I believe, we should not give up entirely the tool of, my, of migration, as a, uh, we should not give up migration as a strong tool for the reduction of global inequality and poverty entirely because we are in this world where everybody who comes to a rich country has to have all the rights of citizenship as a binary category. It's either you're in or out. So that was my logic in, in a very sort of short. Okay, so now the floor is open, and I'll, um, yes, invite you. Could you just introduce yourself? Just a second, there's a... Hello, yeah, I'm Fraser. I'm, I took history at university. And I was going to ask whether if the German social market model would work, whether it work in the UK. Like, like, uh, more work between government and industry to create growth, basically. Bit off topic, but yeah, sorry. The question, I think, was would the German social market model work in Britain? Yeah, sorry, that it, I, it, I should have been clear. It's a little bit off topic. I, I'm, you know, I might have sorry. my opinions, but maybe when we have coffee, I, I will tell you about that. But it's a little bit off. Yes. Just go ahead. I've just finished a master's degree in international development. Um, my in, question in is what subject? international development, uh -huh. say your field. Um, the question I had was when you were talking about migration and um, introducing this uh, like um, separation in the migration coming in, don't you think when people are migrating into these more developed countries and then going back, that also creates inequality within the countries they're going back to. So you're having a migrant class who are coming in, earning lots of income, and then going back. Um, but surely, like, the people who are yeah. eligible to migrate in the first place are, right. um, I don't know, 16 to, like, 40, right. whatever, um, don't you think? No, I, I agree with that. Okay. Slightly older, but... Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I agree, it's, and it's actually one of the sort of also suggestions and policies that I... I mean, things that I propose is actually much stronger taxation of the migrants. So it's another way of discrimination is that actually you could have migrants pay much higher taxes than native population. And these taxes could be then remitted to the country where they come from or they could be kept in the country where they are. So there are many alternatives there, and I'm aware that actually in some cases you can argue that the brain drain can actually make not only inequality in that country higher but also, you know, poverty in the country higher. I think on, the, on balance, however, I really have no doubts that, uh, that free migration is a net gain uh, for, for the world, if you will, in the sense that it is in the same way the net gain that migration within country is a net gain. It could be that actually when you migrate from Wales to England, it could be that somebody in the place that you have left is worse off because you have come to London. But overall, we don't actually argue that, and we don't, I don't think we have grounds to argue that. So it's not different technically for the world. The difference is that, we, that the world is not a single country. It's not one jurisdiction. It's, not, it's one, not one culture. So there are political issues, but I don't think they're really much of an issue on a conceptual level. But I don't want to 
I'll sort of turn this into discussion on migration. Migration, in my book, is simply one of the facets of globalization. And I think it's very important to realize that when we talk about globalization, we talk about movement of trade, free movement of trade, of goods and services, obviously, of capital, of technology, but technically it should include people as well. There does remain the question of why the citizens of a sovereign state, a rich sovereign state, should give weight to reducing global yes. poverty. And that's a real can No, of no, it is actually. I have, I mean, uh, if you have, I mean, I had recently a paper with John Romer on, on that. It's actually, if you have a welfare function, which is simply the welfare function where it includes your actual absolute income, and your position in your country's income distribution. Then when you change the parameters and you put greater and greater weight on your relative position, then the fact that global inequality is going down really doesn't matter to you at all. So essentially what you care is only about your relative position. So there is no, I, I don't see from economic point of view, uh, a compelling argument why I should say that actually citizens of the rich countries should allow anybody to come in. So it's not, I'm not, you know, arguing about that. I'm just arguing that from a general worldwide level, migration is a net benefit. But if somebody says, no, I really have the sovereign right not to let anybody, I don't see a great argument that I'm going to convince him or her that he should. Okay, we have um, somebody up in the top. Yeah, uh, Stuart Nucky from Accenture. Uh, with, with the trends of, uh, in automation and artificial intelligence, isn't the ownership of, of artificial intelligence in, in the future, isn't that going to really increase uh, inequality? I really don't know. It's a, it's a good question. People have also asked me, like, basically, I think, which is similar to yours, what will happen with robotics and uh, uh, how that would work out. Um, I, I don't know, you know, I'm a, uh, I'm a little bit, I must say historically when you look at that, I'm a little bit skeptical of these views that sort of say that robotics are going to basically make everybody redundant. Because this is essentially what we have had since the Industrial Revolution and since the invention of machinery. Every time we had a technological revolution, we believed that we, we are not going to be able to employ people. And of course, you know, very famously, even in the 1930s, Keynes believed that we would have all 15 hours of, uh, uh, you know, free time daily or whatever was the. Uh, it, it, and always what happened is that we found new jobs, new occupations, new employments that we could never sort of envisage because simply I think we are very limited in our ability to foresee the jobs which might exist in the future. And, you know, even like in my lifetime, even if you look in your life, younger people, over the last 20 years there are many new jobs that we never imagined could exist. So I, I'm, not, uh, I, I'm not pessimistic on that score. Now, on what will happen to global inequality, I don't know. I think there are just, uh, there, there are, uh, there are just too many variables. I am more, how should I say, have more trouble dealing with the issues whether China and India, Indonesia and so on would continue to catch up with the rich world uh, to be able to include what would be the effects of robotics or artificial intelligence on that. So I, 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 I must say, I, I don't know. Yes. Thanks. Good evening, Branko. My name is Gary. I'm from the University of Kent. Um, just a question regarding 
towards the beginning of your uh, lecture, you discussed um, waves of Kuznets. Right. It seems to me that perhaps it's a bit, the argument is difficult to prove and difficult to disprove. Uh, and I think that might be one of the weaknesses because effectively I think you're saying as GDP per capita goes up, uh, income inequality will go up and down, up and down. Right. Can you not argue that for any, you know, in any way, anyways? No, I agree with you. It's actually, it's an argument that is difficult. You know, many arguments of income inequality are difficult to prove because the causality is, inequality is an extremely complex phenomenon. So causality is very difficult to prove or disprove. Uh, what you have to come up with, and I believe that I've come up with that in, in the book and to some extent here, is that you have to come up with plausible scenarios, as Kuznets did, why inequality would be moving in this wave-like wave, uh, scenario. And I think actually that, to put it in a very kind of, in a nutshell, that what we observe of um, waning or waxing inequality in the pre-industrial, pre-modern period was driven by these forces that I mentioned, essentially non-economic forces. And we do actually see there on empirical data, we see inequality going down, for example, when you have a plague in Italy, in northern Italy. Then in the modern era, I think that economic forces are playing an important role together with wars, but they are playing a role, so they don't need to repeat now. But the technological revolution was the one that sets the forces of rising inequality, again, for the same things that actually was argued before. Originally, it was movement of labor from agricultural to manufacturing, from rural areas to cities. Nowadays, you can argue it's a movement of labor from manufacturing to services with much greater variety of wages. And actually, if you look at services, which now, of course, have large, 70% or 80% of labor is employed in services, you have an increased uh, of, uh, differentiations differentiation of wages within services. So if you look at actually back to 1980, manufacturing inequality has risen by, let's suppose, 20%. But inequality of wages in services has risen by 40%. So I think that if you come with, as I believe I did, with a plausible narrative why it could be and provide some evidence, you can defend it. But can I prove it conclusively? No, I agree with you. Uh, yes. So you've just alluded to um, my question in your... Oh, sorry. I'm Brag. I'm from a management consultancy. Um, you've just alluded to it in your comment just now, but could you please elaborate on your point on the relationship between war and inequality? Uh, well, there may be two points on this. The first one is, I think, less controversial, so let me start with that one. Uh, I think it's relatively non-controversial, although it has been brought up very strongly, and I think rightly so, by Piketty, is that the, the significant decline of inequality in the rich world started with World War I, or actually there was some dispute whether it was World War I or World War II, but in any case, wars, and that was due to the physical destruction of assets, which of course affected more rich people, to the increased taxation in order to finance the war, which also affected more rich people, to the 
other processes, including the Russian Revolution, growth of the socialist movement, growth of trade unions, which led to the greater share of the rent being appropriated by workers rather than by capitalists. And this is now an argument that people have made that now we are, working, we are living in the opposite situation with greater share is appropriated by capitalists. But that movement was driven by war. So in other words, the logic goes, you have war, destruction of assets, greater taxation, you have dissatisfaction of popular masses, you have threat of a revolution, you have then an attempt to sort of uh, mollify these dissatisfied people by, by having a more inclusive society and lower redistribution lower inequality and greater redistribution. So that's one part of the war. Uh, the second part, which is more controversial, and I spent only two pages on that because I didn't want to go into that, but I, I, I'm actually working on a paper now, is to argue what I call in the book about the endogeneity of World War I. In other words, that high levels of inequality and underconsumption is going back to Hobson's idea, and then also Rosa Luxemburg and Lenin, were the forces which propelled toward countries towards you know, imperialism or colonialism and led ultimately to a clash between the different forces. So this is a, you know, uh, a different story because if you agree with that story, then the, the, the danger of inequalities within nations is such that it can lead to foreign um, how should I say, entanglements or foreign clashes that might result in a war. So in that sense, wars are the outcomes of national inequalities. So that's the second part of the statement, which is more controversial, where you see the war as an outcome of inequality. The first part of the statement, I think, is less controversial because we have lots of evidence of wars leading to the reduction of inequality. So I would like to make this distinction between these two things. Uh, war as leading to lower inequality, which I think is, is uh, non-controversial, and inequality leading to war, which I think is more controversial. Okay, we have a question coming back there. Hi, my name is Sam Barker. I'm here for fun, really. Um, uh, my question was, you talked about education not being a silver bullet, and I think both right and left politics in this country would think that it is, so I wondered if you could expand on that. Yeah, I'm, uh, you know, I have to say that whenever I mention education, I, I become a little bit uh, worried, because it seems to me that I'm just repeating what everybody else says, and I do agree that education was a very great force in rich countries in the past for the reduction of inequality. It's a great force in Brazil, for example, today, because you started with like 25 years ago with four or five years of education, you're now at nine. So it, people have argued and actually provided empirical evidence that that has led to the reduction in wage inequality and consequently of income inequality. But when it comes to the really rich countries that are at very high level of average, you know, uh, education, uh, average educational level, number of years of education, and so on, I'm a little bit more skeptical because I think that education has a sort of a, uh, a plateau, a, a ceiling. So in other words, you cannot push education beyond 16, 18 years or whatever. It's not really the, the silver bullet becomes weaker. However, one thing actually where I see education as potentially still being important is something that, of course, in the U.S., Bernie Sanders has argued, is 
equalization of, first, equalization of access to higher education, regardless of income of people, which then means that the cost of education has to be reasonable or low so that actually people can accede to that education, which then also means that the quality of education should be reasonably equal so that the returns to education should be reasonably equal. So in other words, I still see education as a potential leveler if people from whatever background can more or less access education equally and if they can access education of about the same quality, which would lead to about the same wages in the future. Because if they either cannot access or if they access education of very diverse qualities, that leads to, of course, large differences in the wage premium that they have in the future. And I think in that sense, I would still see, even in rich countries, education as a powerful tool. And I must say that, that the fact that we have moved, and in Europe we are moving also along the American model, towards much more private education and much greater diversity in education, my, is, is making this achievement of that objective more difficult, I believe. Okay, we have a question up there. Thank you, Professor, for the talk. Uh, I'm a student at the LSC. Uh, I was hoping you could task, ask you about your work with pre-industrial societies. Specifically, Sorry, who's asking that I cannot see? Do, up, upstairs. Right. Oh, upstairs. Hi, yeah, hello. Okay. Uh -huh. With um, the inequality possibility frontiers and the extraction ratios in your paper, and um, what are the consequences of long-term observable inequality within nations? Is it simply that once a certain level is reached, there are forces that create the opposing, um, that mm -hmm. correct the economic factors? such as um, your mention, your example of the Black Death or the Roman Empire's downfall. And I suppose my question is, why is it that non-economic factors arise to correct the economic factors, the economic inequality? Okay, I will not, you know, you, you mentioned, of course, one thing which is not in my book, it is in some other papers, it's about this uh, inequality extraction ratio, which applies to pre-modern societies with particular force. Because what is, what is very special in pre-modern societies is that these are societies that are on average with an income that is only two to three times subsistence. So in societies like that, the overall Gini coefficient, which measures differences in income bilaterally between all of us, is, cannot be very high. Simply because even if I'm the king and I get the entire surplus of a society which is very poor, uh, the difference in income between all of other people would be zero because everybody would be the subsistence. And I would be the only one rich and the simply Gini coefficient and other measures like tail, which include everybody in the calculation, not only me and somebody who is poor, but everybody, these measures are then really limited from above simply by the poverty of the country. And in that inequality extraction ratio has this sort of a very interesting feature that then you can actually measure, you can say what was the Gini coefficient in a place like Roman Empire and say what would have been the maximum Gini coefficient in Roman Empire uh, if the entire surplus was taken by a tiny elite. And oftentimes what you find is these pre-industrial societies is that you might actually be very close to the top. You know, so you can actually be, the maximum Gini could be like, for example, 55, and the reported, well, reported or calculated or guessed the Gini is 50. So really, the, 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 the elite has taken as much of a surplus as is feasible and compatible with everybody else surviving. Now, that concept, when you apply it to the modern societies, <laughs> is less useful unless 
uh, you define the social minimum as something which depends on the, on the income of the country and not on subsistence. Because obviously in, the, in, the country, in a rich country like, uh, like UK, for example, if everybody else was, everybody was at the subsistence and one person take, took the entire income, the Gini would be 100, you know. So that's the, that's the, 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 uh, the inequality extraction ratio. Uh, there was something else that you asked about uh, just very briefly at the end. So why do non-economic non factors have to arise to correct the economic ones? Oh, but no, in the, in the, well, I, I was talking about the, in the pre-modern societies, I don't think that we have strong economic factors like education, uh, so, uh, techn technological advances, or political movements that are able to reverse inequality. I think this is actually something, obviously technology by definition was stagnant, uh, education was stagnant. Political forces, yes, actually do include, I mean, make uh, room for them uh, to, be in, to be potential levelers in pre-modern societies. Okay, we have just a few more minutes and uh, I think two questions. Yeah, I will be uh, brief one, really now. One, one up there and one over there. But first of all, up there, can, can we take both questions together yeah, and yeah, then yeah. you can pick and choose which one you answer? No, I'll answer both. Okay, up there. <laughs> Thank you. Hello, my name is Anna Lakai. Um, I just wanted to bring into the conversation universal credit, uh, which is something that, for example, Canada is looking right, at yeah. introducing, which is popular across all the parties. Um, uh, John McDonald here in the Labour Party as well, the Shadow Chancellor, yeah. is also considering um, looking into implementing some sort of uh, universal credit plan in, in um, this country. Um, there was a failure, obviously, in Switzerland to, to introduce it. Um, I think that would You mean universal basic income? Yeah, yeah. Yes, universal ba yes, uh, basic income. And I think that would resolve many of the inequalities and also set some sort of baseline, and as well for migrants, in which case this argument of um, having some sort of second-class citizens uh, coming into a country to do labor for a little while, which already, I think, exists in some ways, I, I don't think that's the solution. Um, and um, I think we, we need to take into consideration human rights as well um, and, uh, you know, define what is that baseline, what is acceptable, and, um, yes, not contributing okay, our human rights. Okay, can we just rights. go straight to the final question over there? Um, hi, uh, I just wanted to ask, uh, is there any correlation between uh, inequality and capitalism, socialism, and communism? And uh, if you can share your view of the future of inequality, of oh. middle classes. Um, I say the second part was? Uh, uh, what is your view of the uh, future of middle classes? I see. Well, okay, well, that Thank was you. the title of the talk. Uh, uh, on, uh, let me answer the, the, first question, the second question first. Is that, uh, okay, empirically, uh, we know the socialist countries were uh, uh, more equal or less unequal than capitalist countries. And actually, I remember in the 70s, there used to be regressions being run, and always for, you, you would have basically Kuznets idea, and you would have income level and then other variables and so on, and there was always a dummy variable for the communist countries because they displayed lower level of inequality. And I think that was the case. And of course, the increase in inequality during the transition showed that. Now, obviously, it did not increase equally in all the countries. You have many countries in, this, in Central Europe that are still below 
uh, level of inequality of OECD countries. So, you know, that universal increase in inequality was very different between Russia, for example, or Slovenia. There is like a lo- lo- big difference how much inequality did go up. Now, on the future, well, one sentence in the future, I've talked about the middle classes in the rich world. I've talked also about the increased incomes of the middle classes in China, which I think pose a different issue, and that's the issue of political participation and the ability of the current political system or regime in China to actually subsist, whereas uh, large groups of people become much more educated and richer and might demand political rights. So that's the problem, I think, of political of the middle classes in China. And for the world, essentially the issue is can, does, the, does the global middle class have a meaning? Because within nation state we can see that, that middle class has some meaning, political or otherwise. But globally it's much, much less clear because there is no global governance, no government. Uh, on the previous question, I really don't have much to add. You know, I don't d- didn't deal with individual uh, sort of policies like you know universal minimal income. Uh, I'm in principle in favor, although I'm not sure that the numbers really could be always feasible. So I, I am really agnostic on that. And uh, on human rights, yes, I think actually uh, this. Uh, several tiered or several layered citizenship doesn't mean that you mistreat the workers. Doesn't mean that you take their passport or you beat them or you put them in really inferior housing. It just means that you can actually visualize a situation where somebody from Nigeria comes to work in London in the same way that he comes or she comes to Lagos with the expectation that he's not or she is not going to stay there forever but might go for four or five years and then his visa or her visa expires and she returns. So it's not really a question, in my opinion, it is not a question of mistreating people, it's really the question of letting them know what is the realistic option that they have in front of them. Okay, so just two points um, before we end. One of them is to draw your attention to the dog that didn't bark, namely inheritance. Inheritance as a cause of possibly increasing Uh, wealth and income uh, concentration. Um, Piketty gives that quite a lot of importance, but I think in your book there's rather little discussion of inheritance. Any case, rather than go off into an answer to that question, um, uh, I will finally remind you that there is a book sale outside. You can buy a copy of this very accessible, interesting-to-read book for the cheap price of £23. So thank you very much, Frank. Thank you very much.